I can affirm that it is God alone who forgives sins, and at the same time say it is also given to the church to make proclamations of sins forgiven or not. People got hit by the hammer of ecclesial authority. And so they're they're not actually hearing what's being said because they've never seen it used constructively. You're listening to the Holy Joys Podcast, co-hosted by Jonathan Arnold and Dr. David Fry. Visit us at holyjoys.org and stay tuned for weekly discussions of theology and ministry practice, all for a holy, happy church. All right, so we're here to discuss the church's authority and responsibility to forgive sins. Not a challenging topic at all. Uh, It's one of those subjects that uh, we want to tread carefully, reverently, uh, with humility, uh, because we do believe that it's taught in Scripture, especially John 20, 23, which we're going to be talking about um, here in a moment. But recently, uh, October 13th, earlier this month, published an article by that title, that expounds uh, John 20, 23 in light of parallel passages in Matthew, especially Matthew 18, Matthew 16, um, but also uh, quite a few other passages like in uh, 1 Corinthians and throughout the New Testament that help us to develop a theology of the church, its uh, relationship to salvation, its relationship to, to represent Christ as, as his body, right? Christ the head and the church the body, being the full, the whole Christ, representing Jesus, uh, an extension of His authority, and um, and of course, you know, it's it's a subject that um, has created some questions, some some concerns, even, and so we'll just do our best to try to talk through some of those those legitimate concerns, legitimate questions, but questions that we wrestle with, you know, ourselves, mm-hmm. not questions that we're unaware of. Um, so John 20, 23, we'll just read it and then uh, maybe we can talk about it a little bit, but John 20, 23 says, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. And, uh, reading Scott McKnight's book right now, the blue parakeet, this is one of those blue parakeets, you know, one of those birds, it came to his bird feeder. He says a blue parakeet came to his bird feeder one day. This doesn't fit. This doesn't belong here, right? And uh, he thought, this must be a bird that escaped somebody's house. And so he tried to catch it. He tried to tame it. He tried to control it. It didn't work. And he learned to just sit back, uh, sip his coffee, and appreciate it for what it was. Let it affect him. And this is one of those passages that, you know, boy, we get in there as evangelicals, you know, passionate about justification by faith alone, which I am too. I just wrote a, you know, 21 word, 21, uh, 2100 word essay on that, right? Very passionate about the solace. Teach them every year around Reformation time. Make sure we bring them back, you know, to, to the attention of the church. Um, but very easy to get in there and just want to grab that blue parakeet, grab that and just tame it and control it and just push it down and not let it say what it says. But I think if we're willing to come to it, honestly, we can see that, that uh, it's a doorway to an area of theology that I think we've neglected and can actually be a, a path towards uh, maybe fleshing out our theology, expanding it a bit, and arriving at something a lot healthier. If I saw a blue parakeet, I, I'm a bird watcher. Uh, I enjoy watching birds. I even you know keep track of what I see. But if I see something like that, uh, one thing I'm not going to do is just turn my face away and not pay attention to it. 
Uh, John 20, 23 is one of those passages. It's a difficult passage. So no one is saying that's not. Uh, it's a difficult passage, but we don't have the option of ignoring it. And it, it is difficult because it touches on at least two, if not th- three or more, uh, challenging concepts already. Uh, you mentioned uh, you mentioned one, and then you made allusion to a passage that includes the other. One is, what does it mean when Paul says in Ephesians 1 that the church is the fullness of Christ? Uh, what, what does that mean? And secondly, the exercise of the keys. Uh, you mentioned Matthew 16, 18, and 19. Uh, what does it mean to exercise the keys? What does that give us access to? And how does that relate to the authority of Christ and the authority of the church? Uh, in John twenty twenty three, as well as uh, these other passages that will come up, uh, particularly in regard to uh, the relationship of, of the keys of the kingdom, uh, Jesus is touching on the relationship of heaven and earth, the relationship of the king, God, and his kingdom revealed on earth, the church, the kingdom revealed through the church. Uh, The church does not comprehend the entirety of the rule of God on earth, but it is the visible manifestation of it. And so the church has a unique role, and that's how we need to be reading John 20, 23. So we probably ought to start by connecting them very carefully, connecting John 20, 23 to Matthew 16, 18 and 19 and Matthew 18, 15 through 20. Uh, Do you want to lead us through that? So I've taken one approach to making the connection in the article, um, but I would be interested in hearing how you approach that, because I know that you, you okay. teach this and I think your membership class, right? So I'd be very curious to hear, you know, what is your, your approach to, to bridging those passages, which have, by the way, have always been read together. I mean, this sure. is, you know, sure. long, long tradition here. Right. So the uh, John twenty twenty three does not make any mention of the words uh, binding, loosing, or uh, the word key. Uh, is absent here. Uh, But when we begin in Matthew 16, particularly 18 and 19, where Jesus is uh, giving explicitly the keys to the kingdom to to Peter as the leader of the apostles, uh, of of the disciples at that point, uh, he is giving the keys to Peter and uh, through him to the church for a particular reason, and he calls that binding and loosing. We, which, by the way, is picking up on an Old Testament concept. Uh, we'll get there in a, in a minute. Then we go a couple of chapters later, Matthew eighteen, where there is a specific church discipline matter. That's the context. Uh, a, a brother has been offended. What do you do? It. Jesus is talking about the role of the church then. And again, picks up on this binding and loosing uh, language, but now specifically in the context of church discipline. So we know, therefore, that binding and loosing has something to do with church discipline. 
And we know that church discipline has to do with uh, what to do when sin arises within the church, when a brother or sister is sinning uh, against someone else within the church. So when we come to John 20, 23, and uh, sorry, in Matthew 18, then the binding and loosing is connected to uh, forgiveness or or considering them now outside the church as a Gentile or tax collector. And so John 20, 23 is very abbreviated. It doesn't have, we don't have near as much detail, but the language is even stronger. Uh, the language, which you read of, you know, whatever sin or whoever sin you forgive, they are forgiven. And, but, but by the way, we were, we're okay with that. We have a lot of explanations for that, right? <laughs> but it's the second part that's troublesome, uh, especially, and that is who sends you withhold, or when you withhold forgiveness, mm-hmm. it's it's withheld. Uh, it's withheld where? It's withheld in heaven. Yeah. So it's speaking of the relationship of the reign of God in heaven and then manifested on earth through the church, particularly as it regards sin and forgiveness. So we're going to talk more detail about what that means because that sounds very alarming. Mm-hmm. And it ought to. It, there, there, it ought to raise alarms. It ought to be sounding uh, you know, some bells and it ought to be flashing some lights at us because at the very least it speaks of the incredible responsibility and role that Christ has entrusted to his spirit-filled church after to carry on after his incarnate life here on earth. Mm-hmm. So a lot of details there to unpack, but th- that's how yeah. I make those connections. What do you have to add? Yeah. So um, you mentioned that the second half of that verse is the part that that tends to trouble people the most. One of the most common ways that I hear people trying to tame the blue parakeet, so to speak, um, is, is by saying that Jesus here is, he's sending them out to preach. You know, the father has sent him. I, you know, I'm sending you, this is like great commission here, go preach the gospel to every creature. And so, you know, all Jesus is, is saying here is just simply, you know, you know, when the church proclaims, uh, the gospel, they're offering people the forgiveness of sins through the message of the gospel. Um, and and that's that's all that it means. But the problem with that, of course, is it, John's saying more than that. It's pretty obvious, I think. But then also he's he's going on to say, uh, state this negatively. Clearly, there's 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 something more going on here. There's something more to what John is saying. And he uses the language of of the church forgiving. They're actually, this is an action of the church. This isn't just the proclamation of a message. This is the action of the church. And so then when you look at it, you say, okay, well, where else do we see something like this? Um, it's it's very easy to connect the, there's the, both the positive and the negative aspect here. Um, there's the, um, the, the, the binding, the loosing. There's the extension of forgiveness, the withholding of forgiveness. Um, there's the, the sacramental aspect of it. Um, you know, if you bring in the theology of, of Paul, that we are one body because there's one bread, then exclusion from the body in Matthew 18 must include exclusion from the bread and the cup. Mm-hmm. And the cup, Jesus said, is forgiveness in my blood. So excommunication includes 
you know, saying to this person, we are no longer extending forgiveness of sins to you. That's not to say, and this is where Protestants differ from Roman Catholics and the reformers were really clear on this. That's not to say that forgiveness is so inextricably linked to the sacraments that if the church errs, makes a mistake and excommunicates somebody who really is a true believer, you know, inwardly part of the Mm -hmm. mystical body of Christ, that then that person cannot by any other means be saved. But by excluding them from the ordinary means, the sacraments, Mm -hmm. the church makes this proclamation. So I I tend to make a, you know, more that take that more sacramental route. Uh, But I think either way, uh, just building a case that it's pretty hard to, to not make the connection there. Yeah, so I definitely want to unpack that as we go through this. Uh, there, there's a again, there's a lot there, and one of the reasons there's a lot there is because there has been uh, wrong excommunication uh, right. through the history of the church, right? And there are so many examples. Uh, so it's it it's clear to us as Protestants that the church is not infallible, uh, but we we have to <laughs> get into into fallibility and infallibility. We got to get into sacerdotalism and the doctrine, which is held by Roman Catholics, Eastern Orthodox, and by the way, the Church of England. Uh, they all uh, affirm a some version of sacerdotalism. Uh, so we'll get into that. Uh, but let's, let's step back just a little bit, because I think the big question that needs to be asked to kind of introduce something like John 2023 is, is this, at least this is the way I've, I've put it. How does Christ continue to exercise his Lordship in the church after his resurrection? He does so first by giving the Holy spirit. And we'll talk about John 2022 20, in just a moment. Right. Uh, but, but this is a big question. How does, Christ exercised his lordship in the church after his resurrection. Another way he does that is Matthew 16 and him preparing the church for his, his absence uh, by giving the keys to the kingdom. And uh, so let's just briefly describe the keys. The keys in the ancient world, they symbolize access, particularly access to power the ability to shut doors or to open doors to provide access or not. Uh, that's the symbol. And so possessing the keys, as, uh, as Grant Osborne tells us in his commentary, uh, possessing the keys means having considerable authority. And uh, it's interesting that John, in his book of Revelation, twice he refers to uh, the passage in Isaiah, and it slipped my mind uh, what chapter it is, but the passage there in Isaiah where Eliakim is given the keys as the chief steward of Hezekiah's household, and Hezekiah tells Eliakim, you know, here are the, here's a key to the house of David. Whatever, whatever you open, no one can shut, and whatever you shut, no one can open. So you remember John picks up on that language uh, a couple of times in the book of Revelation, and it's the same idea that Jesus is picking up on in Matthew 16, that the keys is uh, giving someone the power of the keys is uh, him authorizing Peter, 
and the apostles and through them the church to to exercise uh, the continuation of Christian authority within uh, within the world. So uh, this idea of possessing keys, it runs through scripture more than what we realize. And once we begin to get a grip on uh, the role of the church as a manifestation of, of Christian authority, uh, we begin to see uh, these, these subtleties. It's not just in the New Testament. This is Old Testament as well. God uh, giving, ordaining, setting up people, uh, you know, the nation of Israel, and then individuals even to take a role in uh, his, his rule uh, on earth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I I like uh, the illustration that uh, we we use in this article of of marriage. How there's authority, the authority of a minister to marry someone, and we we say so-and-so married my wife and I. And we understand that when they say that, uh, they don't mean that somehow the authority of marriage, which is this God-ordained thing, you know, lies in the hands of men. Ultimately, it's it's God's say-so that matters, right? It's what God, mm-hmm, right. but God has ordained certain ways, you know, for, to extend this covenant to people. So it's, 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 we're, obeying God's plan for how marriage is to be, you know, carried out and, and the covenants to be made. And there's also the secular authority that comes into this, right? So we also understand that just because someone has the authority to to hold a, wet, a wedding ceremony, they've gotten their little certificate in the mail, maybe they completed a little course online or, or they're an ordained minister or whatever. It also doesn't mean that they can just suddenly set the conditions uh, or, or carry this out without regard to the state's requirements. Mm-hmm. So in so far as a minister acts in harmony with the state and in harmony with God's, you know, ordained purposes for marriage, then those people are married. Um, and so it's similar when we say that Christ is exercising his lordship in the world through the church uh, the head is acting through the body, which are his hands and his feet. We're not saying that the body now suddenly has like this absolute authority to act in any way that it wants. And whatever the church does represents whatever Christ does. Of course, we know that it's insofar as the body is acting in harmony with the head insofar as the church, uh, you know, the people of the kingdom are acting in harmony with the king and carrying out things according to his ordained plan and in his spirit and in the fullness of his spirit that then um, the church's actions actually accomplish something because they're actually acting as representatives of or be mm-hmm. on behalf of uh, the authority of the king. So I think clarifying the relationship of authority there and its exercises is really vital. Right. So Grant Osborne says on, on this passage, he says, the church exists on earth, but with a heavenly authority behind it. Mm. So I, I, picking up on your illustration of uh, the image of marriage, uh, Christ's lordship in the church is primarily about a structure of care, which he provides f- to believers through the community. Uh, th- the church is not uh, the church is not Christ. Again, Paul says the you know the church is the fullness of Christ. All right, but we do not get into you know some sort of 
you know, ontological confusion here, right? The church is not Christ, but it carries out the fullness. It continues the mission and the witness and the authority of Christ. But the, the authority of the church is always derived. It's never absolute. So while the language sounds so absolute, uh, for instance, in John 2023, uh, we should not be so presumptive as to think that God is bound subsequently to accept whatever arbitrary decision <laughs> is made within the church. Right. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so, and, and that, and, and that then is because the church is fallible. Yeah. Yeah, I just I don't want to get too far away from that first comment that you made. I think you made a really important point there, but it needs I think even like a further qualification clarification because this is a concept that that we don't hear a lot about, especially among Protestants, and that is how the body of Christ and Christ relate ontologically. Yes, there's a sense in which Christ the church is not Christ, but it's like me saying I am not my wife. Mm-hmm. Like I I'm not my wife. Yeah. However, However, even though that's true, it's also true that scripture says we are one flesh, that however I treat the flesh of my wife, it's as though I'm treating my flesh that way. Mm -hmm. And so even though the church is not Christ, scripture also says if you persecute the church, you persecute Christ. Yes, yes. If you hate the church, you hate Christ. If you walk away from the church, you walk away from Christ. Um, So there are, there is a long tradition of actually saying like, oh, yeah. I I don't like, I mean, I think, is it, uh, Juliana of Norwich? Who, who is it that says like, uh, I do, I do not claim to understand the mystery of Christ in his body, but this, I know I am Christ. And I'm like, Oh, you know, but, but yet there's a long tradition of speaking like that. It's like, and it makes you nervous, but what they're doing is they're leaning into those Uh passages and they're trying to to kind of, in almost in a provocative way, cause us to wrestle with this mystical reality that the New Testament speaks about so frequently of union with Christ, where it's like, I, I'm not in heaven. Christ ascended to the right hand of God the Father. And yet Paul says, you are seated in heaven right now. So, mm-hmm. so that's why, you know, we have to have on one hand the recognition the church can err, it can act outside the authority of Christ. There's an ontological difference. Everything the church does is not what Christ does. And yet, if the Christ, if the church is acting in harmony with the head, it's as though it is Christ himself. Yes. Yeah. And there is a oneness that uh, obviously Paul alludes to it there in, in Ephesians 1. Uh, 21, 22, but then Jesus himself, when he stops uh, Saul, right? On the road to Damascus, he says, why are you persecuting me? And, and Saul is persecuting the church and Jesus takes it personally, right? Because it is a persecution of him. Uh, and, and that's, uh, and then Paul, Paul recounts that again later in Acts, uh, and so already there is beginning in Paul's mind, he's catching on to, oh, so I, I'm not just hauling people off to jail or to be stoned. I'm doing this to God himself. Mm-hmm. And th- this dawns on on now Paul. And so he begins uh, after spending some time uh, 
you know, uh, uh, communion and revelation from Jesus Christ himself uh, begins to make these connections, realizing that the church is something is something special and has has a oneness with Christ, so that he can say in Ephesians, and it's not just in Ephesians uh, one, but particularly in Ephesians one, uh, verse twenty two and twenty three, I guess it is. Uh, he says that the church, the, his body, which is uh, the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Uh, that's that's a really important uh, concept. It's a complicated one. Now, historically, uh, that has been called the doctrine of the totus Christus, the total Christ. In what sense is the church one with Christ? In what sense are we the fullness of Christ? Yeah, and, and it makes a lot more sense then um, – to read John twenty twenty three about the church's authority, responsibility to forgive sins, to, to pick up a passage like this and say, okay, you know, I'm not, Jesus is not suddenly contradicting the earlier statement that God alone can forgive sins mm-hmm. or that, you know, Christ as God has the, this son of man has the authority to forgive sins. Now, of course, no, you know, nobody is is denying that and i would never want to undermine that fact even i mean absolutely right i mean who am i right who am i (laughs) i'm nobody a sin is a david says against you and you only have i sinned right and done this evil in your sight even though he had sinned against bathsheba and uriah right it's and, and the whole people of israel we understand that that's weighty i mean it's it's a debt to god and god alone can forgive it but it's like, oh, okay, but Christ has made this identification with the church so that if they act in harmony with his intentions and with his plan, they actually act as Christ, as representatives of Christ. Mm-hmm. And for somebody to just ignore, override that authority is as if they're just overriding the authority of Christ uh, alone. So when I think about the authority of the church, I, I don't think I need to feel as though somehow that stands on one side, the authority Christ stands on the other side, but rather Christ and the church are so closely united mm-hmm. that to speak of the church's authority properly is to bring people back to Christ himself. Mm-hmm. Right. So in John 20, 23, uh, the church is given authority from from Christ to the apostles to the church to hold itself accountable to the kingdom ethics that Christ taught uh, as you were talking there my mind went back to uh, our conversation some time ago on the priesthood of believers right mm-hmm. uh, that this is a corporate responsibility uh, and, and maybe now is a good time to start moving into sacerdotalism and making some distinctions between uh, our understanding as Protestants versus you know, Roman Catholic. And again, Eastern Orthodox and the Church of England also have more of a Roman-ish uh, understanding or might, might say, yeah, I don't know. Uh, anyway, there, there's a, a great number of Christians in the world that uh, – practice this differently than what Protestants do. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
Uh, I think the Protestant view is co- the correct one. Uh, I, right. I, I have a couple of serious problems with particularly the Roman Catholic practice of this. Right. Uh, the doctrine, by the way, the Roman Catholic doctrine on this is really difficult to understand. It, it's it, if I don't want to separate practice from doctrine. If the practice says anything about the doctrine, then their doctrine's wrong. Um, mm-hmm. And and the reason is is because uh, their understanding of John twenty twenty three, which by the way is the uh, basic scripture that the Roman Catholic Church uses for sacerdotalism. Mm-hmm. Uh, so let's first of all define sacerdotalism. Uh, I'll offer my somewhat informal definition, and then if you have a formal one, you can share that. But uh, as I understand sacerdotalism, it is the view that a priest or a pastor has an essential essential and special authority to forgive or withhold forgiveness from an individual uh, unilaterally, so on his own. Uh, simply by virtue of his ordination into the priesthood. Uh, mm-hmm. Now, I have a couple of two or three serious problems with that view. Uh, do you have a formal definition? Oh, here's one. Um, I, but but maybe just highlight the elements that they they include. Uh, they would bring in the concept of mediation, that the reason why they have that necessary role and authority is because God has ordained earthly priests as essential mediators. And then also, usually this is in reference to the sacraments, especially the Eucharist, the idea that in the Roman Catholic Church, that when the priest prays the blessing over the the elements, that they turn into the literal body and blood, um, um, of the of the Lord Jesus, which Jesus said, if you don't drink my blood, eat my flesh, or none of mine, they take that literally and say, um, the only way to be saved, you got to eat the eat the flesh, drink the blood. Who has God given the authority to to actually bring that about? That ordinary bread and wine changes its substance. Well, it's the priests, uh, and so they have this special this special divine authority. Uh, by virtue of their ordination and their office. So how, you know, they have that authority. How could you be saved without that? Um, and that that's the, I think usually it's in, in reference to the sacraments. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. So my, uh, my problems with the uh, Roman Catholic doctrine and practice is that it is, first of all, it's part of the, the bigger scheme of the infallibility of the church or the magisterium. Uh so the Roman Catholic doctrine is that you know Scripture is infallible, but uh, in their view, that doesn't really mean a lot unless we have some sort of infallible way of interpreting it. Mm-hmm. And so that's where the magisterium or the church hierarchy, you know, councils and so forth. Uh, which, by the way, they do not hold the priests on their own to be infallible, mm-hmm. uh, but the. Um, you know, synods and councils, and then all the way up to to the Pope when the Pope is speaking, and you know, at certain times, is considered inspired and infallible. Uh, we obviously, as Protestants, reject that. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, there are none infallible, simply because um, only God, God Himself, uh, is is uh, certain without mistake. Uh, so that's one. Um, but the other is is this. So the essentiality and priority of a priest in salvation to a Protestant, 
uh, to me, seems to put the priest's role prior to the role of the Holy Spirit. And so, you know, for me, I want to ask the question, you know, does the Holy Spirit save? And does the Holy Spirit save uh, before, during, after, or an essential connection to the act of a priest? So, uh, again, as Protestants, particularly in uh, John Calvin was especially, I think, helpful on this, um, on, on theology of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will ordinarily work through the ministries of the church, through a, a pastor, priest, through uh, other believers within church ministry. Um, but he's not bound to that. The Holy right. Spirit's not bound to that. Right. So to say that the priest or a pastor is essential and or has priority it is not the way a Protestant would talk about that. I think that would go against... I think it does go against the, how we think of of salvation and our role or not in that. Right. And you probably noticed that every chance I get, I throw in the word ordinarily, ordinarily. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that's that's because Cyprium's maxim outside the church, there is no salvation. It's a maxim. It's supposed to be. Right. It's not supposed to be taken to the wall. Um, I think that the Westminster Confession of Faith gets it right when it affirms Cyprian's maxim with the qualification, you know, the church is the family of the visible church is the family of God outside of which there is no ordinary possibility of salvation. So I do think that um, that Roman Catholics at least tend to teach or imply that the church's role and particularly the role of a priest is essential Although this is like, it's like you said, it's so confusing because Roman Catholics, I mean, there's how many Roman Catholics over a billion, mm-hmm. right? There's no, they're not a monolithic group. They're more, more, more similar, you know, there's more obviously conformity than within Protestantism. But I mean, I've heard good Roman Catholic theologians acknowledge, I mean, I think even the popes acknowledge there's people outside the visible Roman Catholic church who, yeah. who are saved, yeah. who don't, right. you know, go through a Roman Catholic priest. Lots of you know, especially today, you know, the relations between the, the, the Catholic Church and, and the Pro- and Protestantism, believe it or not, but, have changed in 500 years. <laughs> but but let me let me insert this. That's only since the 1960s, the Second Second Vatican, right? Mm, uh, yeah. Not until then, I think it was 62, I want to say, did the Roman Catholic Church acknowledge that there are true believers outside the Roman Catholic Church. Mm. Uh, so that's that's a fairly new uh, formal element. Right. Yeah. Formally. formally. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's a right. bit, that's a big deal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, okay. I don't know where we want to go for, from here. Um, but well, let, let's, talk, yeah, let's just, let's talk about a, you know, let's, let's construct a theology of John 2023. 20, what's, what's happening here. Let's look at the passage and then let's look at some objections and, and, and respond to those. And, uh, and I want to point out uh, doctrinally and practically that we must not attempt to uh, implement uh, John twenty twenty three without John twenty twenty two, uh, where where Jesus gives the Holy Spirit to his disciples. Uh, so, so the forgiveness or withholding of forgiveness is an act of spirit filled people. Uh, so that's point number one, and I can hardly emphasize that enough. Secondly, however, 
This is corporate. Uh, I understand this in relation again to Matthew 18, where there must be two or three. Uh, this is corporate. This is not me as a pastor or you know, the local priest acting unilaterally. This is uh, a pastor or another believer acting in cooperation with uh, the other church and what uh, others in the church. And the reason is, is because the church is not infallible. We are fallible. And in order to alleviate the fallibility of the church, the this sort of responsibility must be carried out by a plurality of Christians, mm-hmm. not by a single Christian. Mm-hmm. So let, let's put those together. Um, first, to your second point, in the article, I write, note carefully that the authority to forgive sins or to withhold the forgiveness of sins has not been invested in any one person or group mm-hmm. of persons. The church mm-hmm. bears this authority and exercises it corporately. Uh, I think I should have said, note carefully, please don't miss, double underline, highlight asterisk, because very quickly somebody turns around and is like, I'm, you know, I'm very troubled by those who are saying that we personally forgive sins. Nobody said that, right? No. Nobody said man. that. That's, That's a, a straw man. man. And then, and then right away, we've got references to the Pope, the Roman Catholic Church, right? You just, you brand it, you label it, you dismiss it. It's easy to just, that's right. You're taming the blue parakeet. Don't look at it. So, ignore that, it. so that's, that's the genetic fallacy, right? <laughs> yeah, right. As, yeah, that's right. So you got that from the wrong, you've been reading too many Roman Catholics. No, we've been reading the Bible. That's it. Yeah. And, and the Protestant reformers, right? Yeah. It's yeah. the reformers who brought me largely to some of these understandings. My, my objection isn't that it's, it's not that I'm Roman Catholic. It's that you're not Protestant enough. Mm-hmm. You, you need to get back to your sources. But anyway, so, you know, note carefully the corporate nature, but now bring that together with the spirit. As you, as you said, you know, Paul says the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, mm-hmm. goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. So if being filled with the spirit uh, is a condition of exercising the office of the keys, then it looks something like something like if you as a loving, joyful, peaceful, patient, kind, good, faithful, gentle, and self-controlled mm-hmm. community forgive sins, then they are forgiven to them. And, and if we don't read it that way, yeah, mm-hmm. you're leaving mm-hmm. the door wide open mm-hmm. for abuse. Right. Right. Yeah, I just had a conversation about an intervention that needs to happen uh, among believers, and uh, we were kind of going over what what's this going to look like, what kind of setting is it going to be, who's going to be there, and that sort of thing. And as we were discussing it, um, a point came up, uh, and I raised the question. I said, well, I'm not sure that that will come across as gentle. Because of all of the things mentioned, of all the virtues mentioned in Galatians 6, 1, in regard to restoration of a believer who has sinned, gentleness is the one that's mentioned. It must be done with gentleness. Yeah. Um, and uh, now, now we, this is where we have to read John 20, 23, a difficult passage, in light of everything else that Scripture says about keeping one another from sin and holding one, uh, restoring one another from sin. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've mentioned this before, but uh, <clears throat> nearly half of the one another commands in the New Testament 
have to do with either keeping one another or restoring one another as believers from sin. Uh, so we can't ignore that. That's a that's a big big deal. So that, now let's let's continue to to look at John twenty twenty three and what does it mean? Uh, so what a, what a, is this forgiving or withholding forgiveness? Uh, it it is a corporate act. Yes, we, we've we've agreed with that. Let, let me just mention these two things. I believe it is a corporate act in which the church a authenticates right living, and b shows its commitment to holiness and to the doctrine and conduct of Christ. I think those are two. Now that we could add to that list, but I think those are two important, important ones. It authenticates right living and it shows its commitment to the purity of believers. So authenticates, uh, by that you mean that the church recognizes an authenticity that already exists because the spiritual mm-hmm. reality mm-hmm. is there. Mm-hmm. I would probably go further because I believe that baptism does something. Mm-hmm. So this gets into a sacramental discussion. I don't know how far we want to go, but it's hard to talk about this subject without talking about it. Because in the Nicene Creed, we have, I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, which is basically just drawing its language right from Acts 2, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. Peter, of course, says baptism now saves you. You know, not as a washing right. of flesh, not like like the Roman right. Catholics sometimes imply or teach that it's just by the very act itself, you know, but through the resurrection of Christ. Mm-hmm. So it does seem like there and everywhere, baptism is described as doing something that goes beyond merely authentication because that can be interpreted in my mind, at least, at least the way I'm hearing it. And that's why I'm pausing. I'm trying to think through and maybe you can just expound a little bit more what you mean on it, but let me, yeah, let me expand this. So let's take a, let's take the illustration of a piece of art artwork. You know, you go to an art, not that I have, but you go to an art uh, auction and this piece, they're asking, you know, millions of dollars for this piece. What is it you're going to want with that? You're going to want, some certificate of authentic uh, of of authenticity, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it it goes together. It goes with the piece. You you don't have it. You may not have the certificate, and it may be authentic, but you don't know that, right? It's it's the certificate again. You it, it's kind of it's very similar to the marriage illustration that you used earlier, and so that's kind of the sense of what <clears throat> I'm saying. Uh, it, it, I'm I'm not. I'm not saying they're trying to discount the church's role. It really is an exercise of the keys. It's an exercise of the derive the authority derived from Christ. It's Christian authority. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I've made a very similar point um, by using illustrate two illustrations I've used repeatedly, uh, a seal because baptism is a mm-hmm. sign of seal of the covenant, mm-hmm. you know? And so, so take like, if I get a letter in the mail and it's from Joe Biden and it says, do this and that I'm going to look for the, pre- the first thing I'm like, yeah. this is probably spam. I'm going to look for right. authentication, right? Is the right. presidential seal on that letter? Mm-hmm. Um, if it doesn't have the seal, 
I'm not going to, to gen, you know, ordinarily mm-hmm. trust it. It's mm-hmm. possible, A, that it is actually from Joe Biden and mm-hmm. some secretary messed up and didn't put the seal on it. Mm-hmm. Or it's also possible, B, that the seal is a forgery. So, it, you know, to, to roughly use, you know, mm-hmm. that illustration with the church, it's possible that a baptized person, the church has, you know, exercising the authority of Christ, baptize them. It's possible they're a forgery, right? We acknowledge that in the right. article. It's possible that my, and I'm, we go up to the altar, my wife and I go up to the, my now wife, go up to the altar. Somebody proclaims us husband and wife, but she's secretly married to somebody else. Oh no. Right. Well, then what he said doesn't ultimately matter at the end of the day, the state of Pennsylvania is not going to recognize that marriage, you know, or on the other hand, you know, you, you know, the other situation. So I agree authentication. I think my point is just, I want to, and I, I can't say that I know how to articulate this yet, but I, I, I and, and there's some theologians throughout history. In fact, I just read Augustine recently who basically says we can't say exactly what it is. But I want to say that baptism also does something. So it's not just authenticating a piece that is already authentic, but ordinarily, if we were proud and in the New Testament, it's at least treated as though it somehow makes the the piece authentic because the grace of God that saves ordinarily flows through and is sealed by baptism in a way there, right? I'm not, I'm not saying I believe baptismal regeneration, but I also want to just somehow do something with the language of the New Testament. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm not sure if this is what you're saying or not, but baptism, for instance, that is, that's instituted by Christ. That is an act but the, by the way, I mean, there are other religions that baptize, but this is something that Christ takes and he authorizes it for use in the church for a special purpose. And in so doing, he infuses, uh, he, he makes it something that it wouldn't be without his authority, right? So when we, when you say, if I, if I hear you correctly, I'm going to take you to be saying this, that... <laughs> That you know, it's not the water that washes <clears throat> washes away our sin. It's mm-hmm. not the act of baptism that <clears throat> that forgives us of our sin, and yet it's not disconnected to the fact that it is Christ who made this act a means of grace, mm-hmm. a sacrament. And right. yes, so so there is. I, I would probably have to agree with Augustine that there is a tremendous amount of that that is a mystery. Uh, but I can affirm that it is God alone who forgives sins, and at the same time say it is also given to the church to make proclamations of sins forgiven or not, mm-hmm. based, by the way, on uh, as as this has been practiced in, in my life and in my experience, based on the fruit of repentance. And so, in my mind, this. This we're talking about uh, uh, primarily the the passages that we've spoken of so far in Matthew and 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 John. Although John's a little bit more a little broader, uh, this <clears throat> this is especially applicable when it comes to restoration. So there are actually two conversations I think, or two places to uh, apply 
John 20, 23. One is in regard to unbelievers who are seeking Christ and, and the church's role in bringing them into the body. The second, though, is the church's relationship to those who are within the church's members and, and sin, and then whether or not they show the fruit of repentance and restoration or not. Uh, the church has a role in that so that a person who is within the body of Christ professing to be a believer, but is ignoring blatant sin in their life, the church has the responsibility of church discipline. And that is what John 20, 23 is touching on. We have to carry out church discipline and accountability for the sake of the purity and the witness of, of the church. Mm-hmm. So if I'm hearing you correctly, it might look something like if you have a person who in the church who abuses somebody else, I mean, physically, sexually, whatever, and then they go to the altar, they pray, they give a testimony that, you know, they had sinned, but God forgave them. But then they go on and they won't accept the consequences for what they've done, legal or ecclesial. They aren't trying to make restitution. And there's these people who continue to be hurt and harmed by those sins, and they're not willing to deal with that. The church has to step in for the good of the body because that's what mm-hmm. the keys are given for, right? The health of the body. It's like the body's immune system to, to deal with viruses in the body. The mm-hmm. church has to step in at that point and say something like, you know, I know that you think that you're forgiven and everything's okay and you can just move on. But, you know, biblically, we have to say that as a church, we can't continue to extend to you the forgiveness of sins if you're not willing to deal with these issues, because there's people who are have been seriously hurt and harmed by what you're doing. So we're not, you know, remembering your sins against you and holding it over your head. That's not what we're doing. We're saying that repentance entails more than just a moment. It entails now a changed way of living and relating to other members of the body. And we have a responsibility to enforce that as a congregation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, th- and that's why we can't ignore passages like John twenty twenty three. It's because we are responsible for the purity of the church, maintaining the witness of the of the church, which is called holy. And if we do not practice, as difficult as it is, if we do not ha- have a good practice on accountability and church discipline, then we will end up with a a with growing impurities within the church. And that's exactly what's happening in the American church where this is not practiced at right. all. Now that's going to lead us to uh, a couple of obje- objections. So let me introduce this objection. And that is, uh, I think you've identified it as kind of a cultural objection, uh, which is uh, a real one. That is, doesn't this kind of talk about the exercise of the keys and church authority to forgive or withhold forgiveness doesn't isn't that extremely risky doesn't that open the church up for all kinds of of abuse right and and so let, let's just briefly respond to that i'll give you uh, the first response yeah so to somebody who yeah somebody who hears this or who read the article and their initial reaction is like, oh man, like that just opens the door for abuse. That is just like a fear response. Mm-hmm. Um, I would, I would first of all, you know, say like, I, I understand that concern. I respect that concern, but I hope that somehow on the other side of this discussion, like I'm inviting you into a discussion, right? And I hope on the other side mm-hmm. of the discussion, right. you'll be able to see 
that my my heart and and your heart, Dr. Fry, is actually not to uh, use authority as a hammer, but it's mm-hmm. actually to to recognize God given authority for what it is for building up, not for tearing down. Mm-hmm. So when Paul says the authority which has given me is giving me for giving me for building up, not for tearing mm-hmm. down. What's he doing? He's recognizing the possibility that it can right. be and has right. been used for tearing down, right? right? You can never remove the possibility of abuse. It's always a possibility. Yes. But I also want to say, I also want to say that Paul's also recognizing in that statement that without that authority, he wouldn't be able to build up in the same mm-hmm. way. Yeah. And so what I want to say is that yes, it's risky to do this. It's also risky not to do it. Mm-hmm. And if it's done well, it can be for the good and the health of the body. And I know people who are, who've been hurt, right? It's mm-hmm. horrible. Sure. Almost all of us do. It's, it's, yeah, it's really, really bad. And I was talking to my family about this on Sunday afternoon and it's like, some of these people, and I just, this is a dumb illustration, but I said, you know, if somebody hit me with a hammer, every time I saw a hammer, I might, you know, like cringe. And, you know, I, you know, I might, somebody might try to sit there and talk to me about how, Hey, this hammer, man, I, you can build things with it. It's got all these constructive purposes. Uh, do you know how the hammer was invented? It's, it's really a wise invention. Right. And I'm like sitting there like, Ah, uh, the hammer. <laughs> Don't hit right. me with it, right? And that's what happens. You know, people have gotten hit by hit by the hammer of ecclesial authority. And so they're they're not actually hearing what's being said because they've never mm-hmm. seen it used constructively. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, or even if they have it used, it's still so hard for them to 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 release those feelings. So I would say, yeah, like one of the first steps is that we we've got to work through the abuse that's happened. We've got to acknowledge it, we've got to confront it. And, and I would, I always say, you know, how do you make any change in the church slowly and with mm-hmm. much teaching? And so mm-hmm. this is not something you jump into. This is something you, you, you yeah. as a pastor, you got to use a lot of wisdom. You got to go slowly. You got to go, you know, right. proceed with humility and, and with the goal of the church's mm-hmm. health, you know, right. very much front and center in your mind. Right. I don't think I really have anything to add to that other than to acknowledge that most people who, uh, read John twenty twenty three in this in light of what we're saying here, or if they hear us treat John twenty twenty three, uh, their response is probably going to be negative. I, I fully expect that uh, that there's going to be a, a kind of almost a withdrawing, like oh man, that, that ooh, I'm not sure about that. There there are a lot of problems with that. I expect that to be the common reaction, precisely because a most Christians, at least in my experience, have not witnessed healthy church discipline. Yes. And two, they have witnessed very unhealthy church discipline right. and abuse. And that even if it's in a subtle way, many, many Christians uh, of, of my acquaintance are have experienced some level of spiritual abuse and heavy-handed use of authority simply mm-hmm. because the pastor had the pulpit or had the platform. Yeah. So so we we acknowledge that. Uh and we acknowledge that 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 is a tragedy. Uh 
but we also acknowledge that God's way is always the right way. And we have to work diligently and carefully to make sure we understand what Jesus is teaching in John 20, 23 and related passages and make sure that as a church, we are living out God's role for the church. We cannot ignore what is in the New Testament, a very significant role for the church. Yeah. I think there's only one thing that I really want to make sure that I get in here before we close. And that is the qualifications for pastors in first Timothy three and in Titus. If you're going to lead the church in exercising this kind of authority, if you realize the weight that comes with that responsibility, lead the church in exercising the keys, it becomes even more apparent how weighty and important those qualifications are. Mm-hmm. We've talked quite a bit about the qualification apt to teach, right? You've got to be, uh, we've got to emphasize theological knowledge, ability to teach, because that's that's the emphasis in the pastoral epistles. But I mean, all of the other qualifications are character requirements. They're mm-hmm. they're about uh, being above reproach, mm-hmm. self controlled, respectable hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, right? Not violent, but gentle. Mm. So here's my question. This is a question for every, if you're in any position to affect this, why, why are we not vetting pastors and ministers by these qualifications? Because I'll be honest, I wasn't. I never have been. There has never been a moment in my life when anyone has probed me about these qualifications. That's a problem. Mm-hmm. That's that's you're opening up yourself to abuse. My experience is that it goes rather like this. Uh, you have camp meeting service or a, or whatever. The spirit moves, a lot of emotion. You got a guy go up, believes that whether he really is or not, believes he's called to preach, testifies to a call to preach. He that's that's the qualification. And as long as there's no like flagrant, obvious, glaring sin in his life, right? Uh, as long as he's not like everybody knows he's doing this, that, or the other, then that's pretty much, and as long as he can find a few people to write him a, a pastoral recommendation, which you always can, right? Mm-hmm. And as you know, you can get a, a license and you can go preach and pastor church and you're thrown into ministry. Is it any wonder then that the church, which is called to restore sinners in gentleness and exercise the office of the keys is not, is not often doing it well when you have pastors who are not tested to see whether or not they're mm-hmm. gentle. Now I'm pouring mm-hmm. coals on my own head here because I, I feel like I was thrown into the ministry. I, mean, I got saved very quickly through, you know, brought into pastoral ministry and, and many of these qualities were lacking in my life, mm-hmm. you know? I was young. I was still working through some things. There's still times when I, I ask myself, I, I come back to these qualifications all the time. I'm like, I've got to, I've got to work on these areas. I've got to keep these areas in front of me. I can't let myself yeah. slip. This is serious stuff. And, uh, and so I just think it's got to start with the pastors and it's got to start with, with really emphasizing character and vetting character and having a thorough process of investigation. And, um, Oh yeah, we sh- we should have a whole yeah. episode on this because I could just go on for a long time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's a great point, and I think that's a good way to to bring uh, this episode to a conclusion. 
uh, to speak directly to pastors and and to those, including myself, who are involved in that process of vetting pastors, interviewing pastors, uh, preparing them for ordination. I think that's an absolutely crucial step. Uh, and, and then I think there are conversations that need to happen within local churches among leadership, uh, pastors and board members and elders. And there needs to be a conversation about this. And it needs to be a very open, gentle conversation where pastors can talk with their leaders and say, what does this look like for us? And how can we implement this? Uh, It's probably not a good idea for a pastor to just unilaterally say, hey, we've got to start doing this and then start implementing something without being uh, patient and and, and teaching. And and then also uh, leaders, congregations need to respect the responsibility of the pastor to be working these things out uh, and leading a congregation on these matters uh, and give them uh, some trust in in uh, learning themselves the best way as long as they are expressing that virtue of gentleness and patience and not being puffed up and not being proud and and living above reproach uh, there ought to be a high high level of trust so these are this is a critical conversation and one undoubtedly that will return to uh, that will arise in different conversations because it's pretty pretty far reaching. Thank you for listening to the Holy Joys podcast. Email your questions to podcast at holyjoys.org and they may be featured on a future episode. Our labors for a holy happy church are supported by generous listeners like you. Please pray about partnering with us at holyjoys.org forward slash donate.